Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. I'm Julia Stainforth, and I'm co-host less this week as Maddie Croucher is away. However, you will be hearing from a couple other members of the Ogilvy Change team, as my colleagues Daniel Bennett and Mike Hughes sat down with former officer and now novelist Stephen Colgan for an engaging and humorous conversation about how behavioral insights can make a community safer. Right, are we going? So today we have a very special guest with us. Um, a man who was a police officer in London for 30 years. He was then a researcher and scriptwriter for the BBC TV series QI and the regular QI annuals and the QI's BBC Radio 4 sister show, The Museum of Curiosity, for 11 years. Please welcome to the podcast, Officer 174702. Oh, that's impressive. <laughs> AKA Mr. Steve Colgan. Welcome, Hello. Steve. You're all right. Yeah. We've got a really important guest, I'm thinking. There's another one. Brilliant. Where is he? <laughs> no, that's a very, very kind intro. Yes, hello. It's straight from your Wikipedia page, that. So. Is it? Yeah. Ah, see, that was set up by my publisher years ago, and I don't know how to change any of it. It's, it's moderately up to date, I think. But, it's uh, pretty good. Um, yeah. So you're here for a talk? You yes, talk this evening. For yes, us yeah, today yeah, yeah. Tennis, talk. So can you give us a brief rundown of uh, what you're going to be talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, I, what I'm going to be talking about, Basically, it is is a sort of very very truncated version of my thirty year police career. Yeah. Uh, saying that, it'll still probably ramble uh, on quite. I, I should try and keep it to a, a real thirty minutes as opposed to a Rory Sutherland thirty minutes. Because um, <laughs> that'll be the intro. Yeah, the Rory yeah, Sutherland thirty minutes. Yeah, absolutely, that's one thing we do share in common. Uh, myself and Robin Ince a couple of years ago, we're, we're doing the. Skeptics in the pub circuit, mm. and we ended up having a bit of a game to see who could do the longest forty-five minute talk. And, and <laughs> Robin won three and a half hours. I mean, that was that was brilliant. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen my longest. Was, yeah, yeah, my longest was about just over two and a quarter. Nice. But, but in fairness, this is because the audience were engaging and were asking questions. That's know? Ken Dog levels. Of yeah, the, uh, I, I wasn't. So I didn't chain them all to their seats or things. You know, <laughs> if you need, there's no more beer. Or no, I, I, the idea of the talk basically is, is yeah to talk about how. Um, when I first arrived in London as a wet behind the ears young Cornishman who joined the police in London as a result of a bet, how, how I tried to bring a little bit of Cornwall to London because um, I'd grown up in some fairly largish towns in Cornwall, places like Penzance and Helston and what they down there call Lanson, but everyone was Launceston up here for some reason. <laughs> um, and, and, but, you know, the crime rates were very low, there were very few signs of disorder, like graffiti and things like that. I mean, admittedly, this was the 70s. But, you know, it it, it just felt, the minute you arrived in London, this this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel quite as safe as home. I mean, at home, I could have walked anywhere and always felt safe at any time. And there were no visible signs that there was any kind of disorder, any crime going on. In fact, I'd only get to hear about the crimes at all when Dad came home from work and said, oh, you won't believe what happened today. Someone stole the housing off a water wheel. You know, and and things like this. And, And... and it, it was it was trying to analyse the difference between where I'd grown up and where I was currently living. And it wasn't particularly, you know, some of the worst parts of London. I was, my first postings were out towards the Oxford and Ricelip, which is quite sleepy wow, yeah. uh, in West London compared to some places in London. But nevertheless, there was, there was a lot more crime. There were a lot more police officers. There was a lot more graffiti and damage and disorder and sort of drunkenness and disorder and all these sorts of things. Um, and bear in mind, Cornwall also very high in unemployment, mm. uh, the poorest county in England, I think it still is. Um, you know, all the things you associate with things going wrong in society, all existed in Cornwall. People were much more affluent in Ricelip and Uxbridge, but it was still worse. Yeah. And, and there were two things that immediately jumped out at me. The first was that there was no sense of community. Yeah. Uh, in Cornwall, everyone knows everyone else, and everyone knows everyone else's business. I mean, to be fair, some places everyone's related, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but the point is, if, if I did anything wrong in, say, Helston, neither would get back to my parents probably before I got home. 
because everyone knew their neighbours and their neighbours knew their neighbours and, yeah. neighbor, and there was kind of giant Venn diagram that joined everyone up in the town. Um, and there was also a tendency for people to stay in the same geographical area. You know, you were born in Helston, you married someone from Helston, you had kids in Helston, and those kids went to the same school you went to, probably had the same teachers, and then, and then you died in Helston, were buried, you know, next to your mum and dad. There was, a, there was a lot of that which you didn't get in London, which had a much more transient population. So that was the first thing that struck me, because everything I'd read about the sort of history of policing and, and what Peel had set up organised policing to do was, was about... You kept reading phrases like the police are the public and the public are the police. The idea being that everyone's involved in policing with a small p. Yeah. And the police are merely the sort of the people who do it as a paid job and are yeah. out on the streets yeah. for a certain amount of day. Uh, and tackle the, 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 the trickier parts, you know, the violent parts and this sort of thing. So that was the first thing I noticed, that you didn't have this sense of community. And policing was very much with a large p and only the police did it. There was this kind of separation between yeah, yeah. police and the public. And the second thing that really struck me was that there didn't seem to be any prevention going on because I'd, I'd been brought up again in a policing family because my dad was a cop i know that my dad and all the other cops would actually constantly be walking around the street they knew their community they knew the people quite yeah. often on first name terms and they would be doing things like you know i noticed you left your windows open yesterday all day that's a good way of inviting the burglars isn't it there was yeah. a there was a, there was a constant crime prevention feel to everything um mm. even though there was nothing there were no organised structures, you know, there were no things like neighbourhood watch in those days, things like that. You just had the old lady with the twitchy curtain at the end of the street, yeah. but everyone looked out for everyone else. And there was a constant sense of, you know, we're all looking out for each other. And again, that was that was missing. And in fact, once I started looking around at how the police were structured in London, it seemed that the only people doing actual crime prevention work were the dedicated crime prevention officers, of which London's 32 boroughs generally only have one person on each borough. And, it just, and they had all sorts of amazing arcane knowledge about how to stop burglaries from happening and, and how to stop your car being stolen and how to stop yourself being robbed. Yeah. And I thought, every cop should have that. And, and so that was the kind of the start of me thinking, why doesn't every cop have this? Why don't I have this? Why is this information not being given to me to take out onto the street and spread? So that was the start of it, really. It was those two things. So what happened then? Did you... you you joined a place in London and, and then how long was it until you started to get your ideas into action? Well, as I said, I did join the police as a result of a bet, <laughs> which isn't the most noble reason for joining, it must be said, but it, it was my dad. It was I, I wasn't a great student at school. I think possibly I'm slightly ASD. Um, the excuse I use is my teachers didn't know how to teach me. You know? um, <laughs> always. But I, I ended up with uh, an A-level in art and an O-level in RE. I thought, well, I can probably build coffins or something, but um, but no, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And the careers advice when you went to school in Cornwall was, so how are you going to get out of Cornwall? That was the careers advice. It yeah. was it was how what's your pathway for getting out of Cornwall? Because there's no work, there's no jobs, it's very poor, everything's seasonal yeah. uh, for tourism. Uh, and you know, it used to be sort of the regular pathways were join the navy or get yourself to a technical college or get yourself onto an apprenticeship yeah. or. You know, sometimes to a university. I mean, yeah. but in those days, maybe only two kids in each year went to a university. Um, and my career teacher was, what are you going to do? And I, I honestly didn't know. And what made it worse was all my friends, who'd been much better students than me, were about to starburst off to places like London and yeah. places like this to, to sort of study various uh, disciplines. And I thought, I'm going to be all alone in Cornwall on my own working in some godforsaken restaurant, washing up for the tourists. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I had this sort of desultory chat with my dad around my 18th birthday. And it got into the, well, I don't, shame you won't join the police. That would, that, that, you know, that's a good job. Yeah. You get a pension at the end of it. It's a steady job. You're unlikely to get laid off unless you commit a crime or do something wrong. And I thought, oh, I don't know whether I could do that, Dad. You know, I've got, you know, I'm a bit more laid back than that. I've been nicking all my friends for drugs. And <laughs> But, it, you know, the more beer went down my throat that evening, the more I, it was being chided into the, you know, maybe you're not man enough, only a certain kind of person. Could <laughs> anyway, I woke up the next morning with this badly written, or badly typed contract in my pocket showing that I'd accepted a £50 bet <laughs> that I couldn't survive for about six months as a cop. Yeah. It even got people to sign the back as if that gave it some kind of legality, <laughs> you know, but um, I've actually got a picture of the actual contract in the tour video later on the slide. Um, but I thought, why not? I'll go to, I won't just join the police in Devon and Cornwall police, I'll go to London. All my friends will go to London. I'll go to London, have a brilliant six months, see a few bands. Yeah. No bands came to Cornwall. 
know, if, it, if it wasn't folk or, or sort of close harmony men singing, that, that, that's yeah. it. music didn't exist. Music didn't come across the Tamar uh, into Cornwall. So I thought, I'll, I'll go up to London, see a few bands, hang out with my mates for six months, and then go back and find something to do with my life. Uh, well, six months became 30 years. That's the upshot of it. But, wow. but during that initial six months, when I thought I'm going to be at home, going home in six months, I kind of wasn't afraid to rock a few boats. Okay. I wasn't afraid to try a few things. So I thought, well, I'm going to be chucked out anyway. I'm going to be leaving. So I did, I, I kind of, I, I got in a lot of trouble because you, you were judged a lot in those days. It's not the same now, I should add, but in those days you were judged a lot on your, your figures, how many people you'd arrested, how many people you stopped and searched, yeah. how many, you know, how many days off sick you had, how many court appearances, all very easy, measurable things. All quite bad things, really, because they encourage you to go out and find people to arrest, which I think is what they wanted, but, yeah, but yeah. nevertheless, you know, people you might have had a little bit more leeway with, yeah. and, and it certainly didn't do any good in terms of the number of stops and searches, because you were stopping and searching people maybe you wouldn't have, which just winds people up. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't getting the figures, and I, I was constantly told, you know, well, you're not going to survive, you're not going to last. But the reason I got through it is because I did try a few things where I went into certain areas where they had sort of a, 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 a quite a large burglary problem or quite a large robbery problem or a graffiti problem and I tried a few things I tried a few things you know engaging with the community and getting them to look after each other and well you look out for that neighbor there I don't even know but there's an old lady there and she hasn't spoken to anyone for six months and there was this and and burglary started going down the figures you know were, were quite undeniable that burglary was dropping and I thought Here's the tricky thing, and I think this is why a lot of prevention wasn't done at the time. It's really hard to measure prevention. Yeah. Because, because you know, um, an actual result. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, catching a burglar, arresting them, putting them in prison, that's all an easy measurable object. Yeah. But if you do something and you get, say, a 20% reduction in burglary, how do you prove that it was your your activity that caused that 20% reduction? And what were the time scales like? So from when you started to see it going down was it it was actually year, pretty month? no no it was, very, it was very quick because i think we, we underestimate the bad guys a little bit the bad guys are very good at spotting a potential victim yeah um and there will be signs and signals i mean i mean people talk a lot about broken windows theory and it's kind of, yeah they're, they're, you know some people are great champions of it. other people say i'm not so sure but the fact is if an area looks run down or it looks like no one cares about it or it looks like the community don't talk to each other all those signals are saying this would be a good place to operate yeah Whereas this place over here, which is a little community where all the gardens are tidy and everyone's all out talking to each other all the time and walking their dogs and chatting over the rose bushes, maybe not. Yeah. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. And and just getting people acting more like a community, sent out the signals that well, we care about each other and we look after where we live. And that was sometimes enough to say to the burger, there are easier targets elsewhere. I mean, it's it's a form of target hardening, which is the, which is the phrase they use. You know, target hardening is putting locks on things, and, but it's... But it's also making a place less attractive yeah. to the bad guys, or at least saying there are more attractive places elsewhere. Yeah, and, the react, and the results were, were very rapid, because those people who would have normally burgled that street said, that's it, we, we, we've had, we've had the, the times of honey, you know, yeah. uh, we've had the good times, this isn't any good anymore, I'll move on somewhere else. So, and, and it was the fact that some of these reductions were quite significant, and the fact that we were getting letters coming into the station which said, I just want to say thank you to PC Colvin because he did this and he came around and spoke to my school group mm -hmm. or he, he knocked on my door the other day and asked if I was all right. It's lovely to see that. Those sorts of things. You hear somebody in the atmosphere it was like at the time. They had nowhere in the station to store these letters. They had a, they had a, they had a book for complaints, but they didn't have a book for letters of thanks. Yeah. So they had to section off part of the book of complaints and stick them in the back of there. This is absolutely true. Um, but the fact that I had these letters of thanks and people saying, you know, I, I, you know, I feel the safest I've felt living in this street for years. Yeah. Um, that I mean, that made me feel great anyway. But that's kind of why I didn't get thrown out, despite the fact I wasn't actually performing very well as a police officer. Because you spoke last year, another struck about um, you have a different way of solving problems, maybe to, to a lot of other people. You might say the oblique solutions or lateral solutions. I think you talked about one about. A lollipop as a way of keeping nightclub revenue oh, yeah, quiet, yeah, yeah. which is brilliant. And um, I wondered what what is it that what do you think the ingredients are within you that lead to that different type of decision making? You seem like a man with a sense of humour. Is, is much, does comedy yeah. play a role in getting people to think differently? I think fun, fun, fun has a huge impact on uh, making things happen. I mean, I love some of the stuff Volkswagen has done in the, in, in recent years. You know, with 
with musical stairs to try and encourage people to use the stairs. The fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. the fun theory and all this. Yeah. I mean, or, or having a bin that when you drop your rubbish in, goes... <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. There, there, were, there were stories of kids going around parks picking up rubbish just to make the bin yeah. make noise. I mean, yeah, fun is a, a great motivator. Reward's a great motivator. I'm a great believer in carrots rather than sticks. Yeah. Um, I know in Scandinavia they experimented with bringing in, um, I think this was due to the fun theory as well, the idea of bringing in a, a good driver lottery. Whereas yeah. instead of just punishing people for being, you know, speeding over the limit, you actually, you actually, you know, reward people who drive under the limit by entering the name into a random lottery where they could win, I don't know, ten thousand kroner or something. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and the money for the prize money comes from the fines of the people who didn't pay any attention to the signs you know, <laughs> and were speeders. That sort of thing's great. We we don't do enough rewarding people for good behaviour. We do a lot of um, uh, sort of ju we just use the stick a lot, not enough carrots. And and I think if you want. To encourage people to do something fun is a great thing. Um, and it's, it's not overly difficult. I mean, saying about lateral, a lot of, res a lot of um, responses to problems are actually fairly common sense and they're not quite so exciting as lollipops. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, you know, they are just doing things very sensibly. I mean, you, you can reduce the number of deaths in hospitals simply by bringing in a very stringent hand washing regime, you know, yeah. and, and a cleaning regime. <coughs> so, so, it's not always necessarily something that's um, a little bit left field or, or creative. But with the lollipops, the, the problem there was we had noisy nightclubs turning out and complaints from the local residents about noise. And, about, and, and there would be occasional fights and a bit of violence. And of course, the, the solution that many people went for, the, the sort of um, the scorched earth solution, was get rid of the nightclub. You know, that's the Occam's razor solution, get rid of the nightclub. Um, Whereas, of course, that would have inconvenienced the whole community because it was people from that community who were going to the nightclub, the young people, and it was bringing money into the community. So we thought, mm -hmm. is it just some way of keeping them quiet? You know, that uh, that would be great. You know, can we, how can we gag them when they come out of the nightclubs or quieten them down? Because you can't just fit a volume control. You know? um, so we thought, well, the obvious thing to do is go and look at the problem. And that's always the first step. The first step is always go and find out what the actual cause is instead of just reacting to the symptoms all the time. Go and look at the cause. And what we found in that instance was it was mostly women's voices. Now, I'm not being derogatory here to 51% of the population, but women's voices, they're a higher register, they carry further, and women tend to gather in groups, whereas men, not quite so much. And we thought, if we can just bring the women's volume down a bit, maybe that would help. And, and I had heard that in Wales, I think in Cardiff, someone had been experimenting with giving people bottles of water when they came out of nightclubs, mm -hmm. which worked really well, because you can't shout and scream or talk loudly when yeah. you're drinking out of a bottle of water. And it helped with rehydration and all those sorts of issues. Um, that was okay until I started hearing horror stories about them having tried it in Edinburgh and cold nights and getting ice slicks and people coming out in a nightclub and <laughs> falling, falling on their asses. Like <laughs> so, so, so initially I thought, well, let's try something else. Let's try giving out sweets. Um, so I think the first time we did, we gave out love hearts. You know, it was, it was just. But the problem is they, they go too quickly. You want something yeah. that's going to stay in their mouth for a while. Uh, then we tried toffees, but you know, fillings came out and things like this. So, so lollipops was the answer. Try the lollipop. And, the, and we had an unexpected secondary benefit because not only when you've got the lollipop in your cheek, it's quite hard to be, I mean, you just do it. Just be, be, it's really hard. It's really quite hard to be loud when you've got a lollipop in your mouth. Secondly, there's something, there's something childish about lollipops. There's something yeah. that, that takes you back to being younger. And we found yeah. that a lot of the guys, and, and indeed some of the women, mostly guys, were far less aggressive once they had a lollipop, because yeah, because now they're being playful and being yeah. silly instead of you know wanting to beat someone's head in. It's so I'm going to throw a lollipop at you. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and and the other great thing about a lollipop is because it's a slow dissolve. By the time the lollipop's gone, the groups have dispersed into smaller groups, or yeah. they've got into their cabs and gone away. And, yeah, and yeah. the problem was vastly reduced to the extent that you know the nightclubs could stay open. I mean, it, it's such a a simple. Solution. Yeah, but all right, we had to go through several iterations and different ideas yeah, yeah. to try it. You know, you, we were kind of prototyping various ideas first, but the lollipops stuck, and in fact, it's it's kind of become part of club culture now. You know, you quite often see you know clubs have lollipop nights and things like this. It's and it, and no expense to the community. That's the great thing yeah. because the yeah. lollipops cost next to nothing from a cash and carry, and the nightclub would buy the lollipops. So how much did you have to fight for those ideas in a sense? Because you know, I always think it's difficult standing in front of your boss and go, all we need is 8,000 lollipops. It's very difficult, and it's not helped when the media uh, are against everything you do as yeah. well. I mean, the lollipop story, when that broke in, some certain 
papers. I think we all know which ones we mean. Um, you know, it was uh, oh, police giving out lollipops at taxpayers' expenses to, <laughs> instead of catching bad guys. It, yeah. it wasn't taxpayers' expense. It isn't. You know, and it's, it's always instead of catching bad guys. You know, catching bad guys is a badge of failure. It means that you you haven't stopped a crime from happening. Yeah. For you to catch a bad guy it means they've already done something wrong. There's already a victim. There's already a cost. You know, there may be a medical cost, an insurance cost. There's certainly going to be a cost in terms of, you know, pers a person's feelings of safety or a community's sense of safety. You know, you want to stop that from happening. If you if you go and took a representative sample of, of 500 people in the street and say, would you rather you didn't get burgled or robbed? Or the police are really good at catching people and putting them in prison. I know which one most people, well, everyone would go for, apart from that one weird person. But I mean, everyone would go for, I'd rather not be the victim of crime. And yet the, it, the onus is always on catch the bad guys, catch the bad guys. No, the onus should be on stopping the bad guys from being bad guys. I mean, initially, great if you can catch them at school age and, and discourage them from going into a life of crime. But if not, making it harder for them to commit the crime. Um, so that those, we don't have to catch them. And then, of course, that gives. You get more value for your money with police resources then, because then the police have freed up a lot more to actually deal with serious stuff, you know, the stuff that maybe should have a lot of resources thrown in it, but the spread so thinly they can't tackle. Some of your, your, your methods were used with um, with lollipops and getting nightclub revelers to be quieter. And then um, some of your TED Talks, some of them were on bigger things. I think it was in Southwark Ground the Corner, was it? Or, oh. There was a piece around a, a, a dog show. Oh, yeah, we did a dog show. So that, that's like a bigger... Yeah. bigger Bigger challenges. Bigger issues, yeah. I, I was just talking to a journalist earlier today saying that, you know, th there are some enormous challenges that you can apply some of this to. I mean, I, I did some work with homicide at one time. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to sort of prevent homicide, because, you know, and I'm using homicide rather than murder, because murder is a very different thing. Murder is murder is someone where someone's actually planned to do it. Yeah. And, that, you know, it's that malice of forethought thing, but they've actually gone through a series of stages to plan something and then done it. Um, most... Uh, unlawful killings are homicides, and that's it's usually a spur of the moment thing. You know, it's a, is that having a bit of a tussle, someone pulls out a knife, bang, or whatever. Um, very difficult because they're, they're very random events, and invariably they're driven by strong emotions, and you, you can't you can't quantify them, you can't plot it. But there are certain aspects of homicide that you can you can something like domestic homicide, where you have got um, domestic violence, an escalation of domestic violence ending up with one partner killing another. There are things that you can possibly put in place there, like a like a green, amber, and red alarm system, you know, with, with neighbours or social services and that. So you can maybe prevent that turn right. becoming a domestic homicide. There's things you can do with. Um, we did some talks with anti-terrorism about how you can, um, without breaking any confidences or more official secrets things. There are ways that you can sit down and work out what are the steps that a terrorist would have to go through to to blow up a plane, for example. And, and, you know, one that, I mean, I'm not breaking any confidence by saying this because this is, this is public knowledge now, um, but one of the ways you can do that is by working out how they can make explosives. And one, one popular idea a few years ago was the idea that you could mix several innocuous substances, you know, liquid, what they call the liquid bombs, yeah. take them onto a plane, mix them on the plane, and they become an explosive device. But otherwise, that's why you're not allowed to take the bottles of liquid on planes anymore, because you could have acetone and you could have hydrogen peroxide, you could have a number of other chemicals when mixed together become explosive. Um, if you can track sales of those substances and you get any unusual blips, that can be an indication that maybe yeah. we need to go and investigate this or at least keep a tail on these people because, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of people who are buying sort of like 15 gallons of hydrogen peroxide and, yeah. and you know, and they're not running a salon where they turn everyone blonde, there's probably, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, there's it's probably in that one. Yeah, <laughs> there's probably some reason why they're stockpiling it. And um, again, so, that feels like a small thing that, 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 that tracking the sales of hydrogen peroxide can actually prevent the destruction of many lives on a plane. Yeah. And it seems to be like a key thing you talk about is almost the proportionality bias that small things can make big differences. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thing that big changes big. And well, joining the, the dots as well, that always seems to be something. Joining the dots so, is very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah connecting things up. But I mean, go, to go back to the dog show you mentioned, I mean, that was that was an emerging gang problem issue um, where a group of troublesome youths, which is a term I much prefer <laughs> to gangs because we don't have gangs over here like they've got in America. Not quite, not yet. <laughs> Getting that way, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, we had, we had uh, groups who were uh, organised themselves around estates or postcode areas and they were fighting and stabbing and, and all this sort of thing. And there was an emerging problem in a particular estate. And when you went to visit the estate, it became very apparent 
why there was a problem on the estate because you realize that when you actually got to spoke to some of the kids who were involved in the gang, people on the periphery of the gang, not the ringleaders, but on the periphery, very difficult to talk to them because they didn't trust the police and they wouldn't talk to us. I mean, it, it took a couple of months of, of solid work before we get any of them to talk to us at all. But you can use other agencies. You can ask, you know, people like the fire brigade. The fire brigade, very community oriented these days, going out, very yeah. proactive, fitting alarms and something. People will talk to fire officers because they're kind of heroic figures, uh, they're part of the community, and, and of course they can't nick you, they can't confiscate your alcohol or your drugs or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the fire service, without breaking any confidences, can nevertheless still report back to us what they've learned about how these kids' lives are lived. And what we found is we had a lot of young, mostly young men, it must be said, who um, either had an absent parent or two absent parents or had a had parents who were alcoholics or maybe were in the sex industry or something like this. Um, and they had no sense of, of belonging. That's what it was. They had no family. They had, a lot of them were, uh, had been thrown out of school. Um, and, and there was no sense of community where they lived either. Everyone just, yeah, yeah, yeah. just got home, went inside, locked their door and thought, oh my God, I hope I don't get robbed or, or burgled today. Um, and so it was, it was a very fractured community. And the only reason they joined the gang, we kept hearing from some of these kids on the periphery, I don't really want to be in the gang because it's yeah, dangerous, yeah, yeah. but if I'm not part of them, I'm at risk. Yeah. And it's all I've got. They are my family. And that's a very strong bond yeah. to break. Um, <clears throat> and we felt, you know, while working on all the other issues of trying to tackle the knife crime, like, you know, you don't stop dealing with those top Catch end issues. Guys. Yeah. yeah, but there's a kind of, you know, there's the top end issues, the top down, but there's the bottom up issues as well, which yeah. is what are the structures that are supporting this problem existing and, and, and persisting? And we thought, well, if we can rebuild the community a little bit so that they feel a little bit more safe where they are, and there's more people out on the streets, because that's the other thing, the kids own the streets because everyone's too scared to go out. Um, and the dog show came from that because we were trying to find a point of commonality between everyone, because there were people from lots of different sort of ethnic backgrounds, lots of different languages spoken. We tried doing a World Food Day, and that was okay, but it wasn't terribly successful. We tried organising a youth centre, someone burnt it down. Um, <laughs> um, but then we, we were walking around there one day with some of the local officers, and, and I think it was my colleague um, noticed that almost everyone had a dog. I sort of looked at each other and went, dog show? <laughs> really? Well, yeah, because dogs are a great, again, I'll talk about the fire service, I don't want to make fire officers look like dogs, but again, it's another great bridging yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if, if I saw any of you in the street, it's complete strangers to come over and say, hello, I'm Steve. Ooh, you'd be yeah. a bit wary. But if I come over and go, oh, your dog's gorgeous. What's his name? Yeah. It's a great bridge, and people love dogs and cats, but yeah, to cats. Um, but no, but <laughs> that's how they feel about us. Yeah, well, cats are all evil. The cats want us to destroy ourselves so they can take over. Um, no, but dogs are a great bridge. They're a great, um, they're a great introduction, uh, a, a method of meeting people. Um, isn't there a dating site now where you can set up a date between your dog and another dog That's brilliant. as a way of you meeting their owner sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. But the um, yeah, we thought let's organise a dog show, and and it was phenomenally successful because people came out of their homes. There was a big police presence, so people felt safe. We had the police dogs do a display. There was um, uh, we had the PDSA there. Yeah. The People's dispensary with sick animals. We do, if anyone doesn't know what they uh, We have Battersea Dogs Home take part, local vets, local schools. We had, you know, waggiest dog competitions. And we actually had a dog show. Well, it really hard to, to sort of pick a winner from all of the sort of staffy crosses there were. <laughs> it was really hard to pick a winner, but we had a supreme champion um, called Daisy. And um, But the point was, you realise it started to have an impact when you saw people talking to each other who normally would never have talked to each other. Now, my favourite moment was seeing a, a, a lady who was probably in her late 70s, about five foot tall, with a little Yorkshire Terrier. And she was absolutely having a go at this six foot two black lad who had, who had a sort of staffy cross, uh, telling him his dog's too fat. Well, what are you feeding it? She's going, and he goes, well, I feed it. So you don't want to give him that, that's rubbish. You should put him on Ukanuba. He's going, how, how do you spell that? And he's trying to write Ukanuba. And I thought, these two people would have crossed the road to avoid each other. Yeah, 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 other yeah very fast. But she is talking to him and he's talking to her as human beings, as people who are part of the same community. And, um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that having a dog show fixed all the problems of the state, but it was the first little chink in the armour and, and a whole raft of things that went on afterwards involving schools, you know, education and, and the local authority and the housing people and social services started making things better. And I went back to visit about three years later, shortly before I retired. And, and there was 
kind of, I mean, the gang problem pretty much disappeared, and it was quite a thriving community. In fact, there was there was a threat at the time that the estate was going to be torn down. And now that they found a community, they were they were trying to stay together. They didn't want More to be united, yeah, yeah, they didn't want to be sort of starburst off to different right. social housing projects around London. They wanted to try and stay together if they could, at least in groups. Uh, and and crime had gone down significantly. Crime had dropped. I think it was seventy two percent. Crime had dropped wow. by, across the whole estate. Yeah. So is there is there kind of talk about comedy? Is there a kind of a, a light heartedness that if you bring to problem solving, just seems to make get to different places? I think so. I think so. I mean, I mean. Rory Sullivan was a huge inspiration to me when I first met him uh, because it, it was so lovely to meet someone who thought exactly the same way but had actually been successful and made some money, you know, which was, <laughs> yeah. which was, which was a joy. And I thought, I should have gone into That's marketing. Crazy. I should have gone into advertising. Um, but yeah, but, you know, if you watch Rory's TED Talks, there's, there's so much humour in there because humour is a great way of selling a message. It really is a great way of selling a message. And I, I found that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff to do with policing is very po-faced and very official very oh you shouldn't do this I mean I remember a, a little while ago there was a there was a YouTube clip of some Thames Valley police officers sliding down a snowy hill on their riot shields and, and, I, and I remember reading in the, I know, the Express or the Daily Mail or something that the officers have been called in and been severely reprimanded for their behavior and yet you look at the comments under that YouTube video it's great to see the police acting like normal people yeah proper yeah. geezers oh, I wish yeah. my police were like this yeah. you know it's, it's you can't buy that kind of Good publicity for yeah. for the police service. Obviously, you've got to keep it within a, a boundary. You've got you've got to maintain. It's a fine line. You've got to walk between being human, you know, having a sense of humour, and still being an authority figure because you've still mm. got to have that. You can't have people ridiculing you because then you lose all your power and, and your ability to keep control of situations. But it's it's not difficult. It's really not. I mean, I, I brought humour into almost everything I did if I could, because that's how I live my life. Anyway, I can't do much without having that. And, and people responded to it, and I think they were often very surprised by, I didn't think police would have a sense of humour, you know, I thought they were all, and, and they're not, they're, they're, oh, right, well, there are a few like that, but they're not all stony-faced, the police is made up of members of the community who've chosen yeah, yeah. to just go into this job. Now, some get horribly, some being indoctrinated, uh, you know, and end up taking on that kind of persona of having to be judged dread all the time. Mm. Um, and there are others, obviously, who misuse their power. You can't deny it. In any profession, there's going to be a, a, a proportion, usually a small proportion of people who, who misuse it or misbehave. But the vast majority of cops are just people who, who are members of the community who just want to make things better. And and some of them are some of the funniest people I've ever met. They're great. And once they got their a chance to do something with the community, you know, it, it, it was invariably always more powerful and more impactful if the community enjoyed themselves. I, th I think you might have spoke about this before, but how did you find it? So clearly you were seeing some results from this kind of lateral new wave solving problem joining the dot. Did your did that way of thinking get easier to sell in internally in the force or towards the end I think you've said that it did it get harder or Yeah, it it, it it was very hard to start with, very, very difficult to start with. And I said the reason I kinda of got away with it is because I thought I'm gonna be sacked in six months anyway, I'm gonna leave. Once I got past that six months mark, it got a bit harder because I thought God, I've got to survive my probationary period now, yeah. which is two years. And I really didn't think I was going to. And again, it was only because of some of the results I'd had and the fact that I had letters of thanks coming in from people like the local MP that I survived. Um, it was quite difficult. I was swimming up river for, for a good chunk of my career. But then there was a bit of a sea change um, in the fact that in America, there'd been a lot of work done. There was something that had suddenly turned up called problem-oriented policing or POP. Uh, mostly uh, built on the work of a guy called Professor Herman Goldstein, who'd, who'd he'd initially been asked by the, I think it was San Diego PD, he'd been asked to come in and look at their business practices yeah. and see if he could find any way of making them more effective, you know, so, so that the public got more bang for their buck. Right. And what he turned around and said is, well, as an outsider coming, you're doing policing all wrong. <laughs> and they went, what? And he goes, you're doing policing all wrong. You're running around trying to sweep up after all the events have happened, you know, imagine if you ran a business like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what you mean? So, so you have a business where everything goes wrong, and your whole business is dedicated to, to basically plastering the cracks and fixing things afterwards. He said it doesn't work. You've got to be more proactive. You've got to, and it, it led to this thing called problem-oriented policing. The idea being that you you build all of your activity around problems. You, you mm -hmm. sort of look at problems. You work out what the causes of those problems are, rather than just responding to the effects all the time. And then what you do is you design solutions that add a degree of permanency to the solution. 
and it was it was it was like a la hallelujah, you know. And and one of my bosses went over to America and saw this a guy called Tim Godwin, who at the time was the deputy assistant commissioner, and he came back, you know, waving the evangelical flag. Oh my God, this is amazing! And a short while later, um, Rudy Giuliani, which mm. if you forget his politics now and his yeah. social media traveler, he became mayor of New York and he made a lot of money available to try some of these things. Yeah. Unfortunately, it kind of got overshadowed a little bit by the zero tolerance stuff, yeah, which yeah. wasn't so yeah. good. Um, but certainly the pop stuff he was doing had a huge effect. Things like, um, like cleaning up the New York subways. Uh, him and Bill Bratton, who was the head of the subway sort of division at the time, the police at the time, they brought in all these little nudges and little systems underground, which yeah. made the New York subway suddenly fantastically safer. And so, as I said, Tim Goblin came back from America going, this is amazing, this is amazing. He said, we ought to be looking at some of this stuff in London. Now, how he heard about me, I don't know. Um, I, I suspect it was through a colleague of mine, a bloke called Neil Henson, who Tim Goblin knew. But I just got a phone call saying, can you come up to Scotland Yard, have a chat with us about some stuff? And I was thinking, oh, God, this is it. They finally, <laughs> they finally caught up with me. My, my, my six-month run is in the family station. No, and, and the idea was um, Neil and, and, and two other people called Paul <laughs> had been asked to kind of set up a problem-solving unit, mm. which I was invited to be part of. Um, and they called it the problem-solving unit because they couldn't think of a better name. Awful name because people were knocking on the door all the time saying, I can't get up smoking. <laughs> my wife doesn't understand me. You know, all the, all the usual things. Um, and I think they also quite often knocked on the door thinking there was we could there was a one size fits all solution. I got a problem with burglary. What have you got on the shelf? Here's yeah. your burglary. Yeah, it didn't work that way. It's a bit like our job. Yeah, very much, very much. I've had so many parallels between you guys and what yeah. we did, which again is how I got to know Rory and, and sort of draw on that knowledge because you guys are really good at selling an idea to people who maybe aren't aware that they want something. Or, yeah, you know that's exactly the sort of stuff I needed. Um, and uh, yeah, so they set up this thing called the Problem Solving Unit. We, we were a bit like a sort of A-team, really. And the idea was we, we'd get parachuted, well, not literally, but we'd be, we'd be <laughs> put into places in London where... That'd be cool. It was more getting out of a mini metro, you know, I mean, having parked in a car park somewhere. But we, the, the idea was that we'd be put into places where there was an, a, a persistent problem that wouldn't go away, that it, usually quite historical, it had been going on for years. And all, they'd exhausted all of the traditional ways of dealing with it. And we'd be asked to look at it. And, and you know, nine times out of ten, we made things better. I mean, one of the first things we had to work out was what is problem solving? Which, which is yeah. actually a, lot, a harder question than you think because, um, see, I, I hate Occam's Razor. People say, Occam's Razor, the simplest solution is always the best. Not when people are involved. <laughs> Not when people are involved because everyone's different, you know. Oh, and okay. Yeah, everyone's different. And what's a problem for one person isn't a problem for another. It, it's it's never that simple. Um, and uh, but with the, the best definition we found was from a, a change expert, a bloke called Michael Stevens, and his definition was that problem solving was uh, changing changing one state to another preferred state. So it's what you do. You're trying to make things better. Yeah. So we thought. So so problem solving isn't eliminating. In fact, it invariably wasn't eliminating the problem because you couldn't. So the problem with elimination is if, if you aim for elimination, if just one instance of that problem happens thereafter, it's not eliminated anymore, you yeah. failed. So what you would do is you'd try to get a, a, a big reduction in the problem to an extent where people felt, well, I can live with this now. Mm. That's what you were aiming for. And usually changing behaviour is just easy. <laughs> you just change it another behaviour. It is, yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so that was what we did. We, we went out and looked at these problems. We tried to make things better if we could. I think we succeeded most of the time. And we had a couple of quite notable failures. Um, I mean, not, not that anyone was worse off than they were before. We just couldn't impact on the problem. Um, either because it was just too big. It was a societal problem. It was just too big for us to handle what we had. Or it was, it was just so difficult and complex that it would have taken, you know, yeah. a lot more time. I mean, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Urination, public urination. Now, we, we were told to look at, you know, people peeing up alleyways in London. Well, obviously not told to go and look at them, but, yeah. but you know, how can we stop this problem? And the first thing we discovered, sadly, like I'm really having to go at the ladies today, having already <laughs> mentioned about the high-pitched voices, was that everyone had assumed it was men. Everyone had assumed yeah. it was men going to the alleyways and having a wee. But the fact is that men are quite well catered for. There's lots of places where yeah. a bloke can have a wee. Yeah. Whereas there's not so many places for the ladies. I mean, any modern architect will say that, you know, if you're building... Uh, a premises like a built office premises. There should be basically, I think it's four female toilets for every one male. 
And, and you don't find that in pubs, and you don't find that in McDonald's, and you don't find yeah. that in these places. And if you get late at night when people are kicking out of pubs and clubs, there's almost nothing. So a lot of the street urination going on, at least half of it, if not more, was, was women. And that's a very difficult issue to tackle compared to, you know, some bloke having a wet on the wall. Yeah. Um, but that was one which we found really difficult to solve. I mean, here again, it's my, yeah, screw you, Occam. Because the obvious answer is, that is to make more toilets available to women, but with limited space, that means you have to cram as much toilets into one space as you can. And the obvious answer, as they have in many other countries, is female urinals. But could we get women to accept the female urinals in the UK? No chance, no chance. I mean, every time that we say pubs put in female urinals, it's, no, we talk to customers, they won't use them. They don't like that idea. So what is a female urinal? Well, it, it looks rather like a men's urinal. Except that, you know, you've got like a bowl-shaped thing, like, a, like this yawning mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there Steve's, are some... just for the listeners, Steve's using his hands in quite a yeah, yawning well, mouth well, way. Well, yeah. there, there are some urinals you can buy that look like Mick Jagger's mouth, don't they? The lips. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, but it, it's got that kind of shape, hasn't it? Well, imagine the bottom part of it extends outwards into a kind of trough. Okay. So you basically put one leg either side ah. of it and, and, and stand over the top of it. So you never sit down, you never make contact with it, you stand over the top of it. Yeah. And there's screens. There's screens between that actually shield you from the next woman too. But of course, you know, having a pee isn't the only reason a woman might need a toilet. So you do still need cubicles, yeah. you still need spaces. But it was just the very idea of publicly yeah. having a wee, even with a screen there, even with a modesty screen. It was just, oh God, I'm not doing that. And of course, there's all sorts of other issues. I mean, what do you do about tights? Because you can't, it's very hard to put your tights around your ankle and then sort of manoeuvre yourself <laughs> over the set. There were all sorts of issues when we did sort of like um, feasibility studies and, and talking to groups of people we brought in off the street to chat about it. And that was a notable failure. We couldn't do anything else. The obvious answer was build more toilets for women. But it's really difficult because you're talking huge budget changes. You're talking about huge investment of money. I mean, they brought in your annals in places like Glastonbury and things like that. Yeah, and, and it's been hugely well. welcomed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because because a sort of younger generation of women aren't quite so coy about using a, a she-wee or one of these sort of devices where yeah. they can actually use female urinals. Uh, and it could well be that as those women get older and have, you know, children themselves, yeah. now, within two or three generations, we may find that people aren't so squeamish about female urinals. But certainly at the moment... Get them in early, that's the that, rule. That was, that was a complete failure, yeah. We've oh, been working on adult diapers lately, and they can hold mm. two and a half litres, so it could wow. be a, another way. Of any, of most liquids. Yeah, <laughs> we had Dr. T going, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I mean, I mean, it's been adult diapers for a long time, particularly for sort of, you know... We're always a massive fan, and anything. Good for truck drivers. Yeah, that was one of... Yeah, well, my, one of my daughters is, uh, manages a care home, and obviously she has to deal with a lot of sort of elderly and incontinent people who quite often got sort of um, issues of dementia and things like this as well and can't control themselves. And she said, yeah, they, they hold a lot. They hold an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, this thing weighs a ton, you know. And you wonder how this, this frail little old lady, you know, she's got legs like twiglets, how she's holding up this weight, you know, she's got about some... Yeah, it does. Cream one, you can get quite a lot of whole cream to the festival. That was one of the <laughs> things that we found. Yeah, we were good. Squeezing it out to these men. Well, the things, I mean, there's, there's various devices now to help you go to them, isn't there? And, and those sorts of things. I mean, apart from the female urinals, there's these bags with the gel crystals in and things like this. Okay. You can, have you seen those? It's a bit, it works a bit like the adult diapers, really. It's, it's a bag that's got like silica gel in the bottom and you wee yeah. into it and, and, and it just becomes a, a stiff gel inside yeah. the bag. There's no liquid there anymore. So you can just toss it in the bin, you know. I had a marvellous magic trick like that when I was younger. I had the crystals in the bottom and pull the water nice. in. The only, the only thing I was thinking about was um, watched John Cleese at the weekend talking about creativity on, on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Really interesting. He talks about um, the way to be creative is to make sure you're in the open state, not the closed state. The open state being a quiet room with no distractions and, and all that type of thing. So when, when you were, before you got in, in, in the helicopter and parachuted into the place, were you in a... With the eighteen, With the eighteen, With the eighteen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we can have the music later, I think. <laughs> um, did you have a blank space to think about things, or was it all in the shower, or...? No, we were, we were very lucky. They gave us... I mean, even though we were essentially from Scotland Yard, um, Scotland Yard, uh, which just moved recently, is down on the South Bank, but the building that is now Scotland Yard, was where we were based, okay. because at that time it was called Territorial Policing HQ, and it was a kind of adjunct to Scotland Yard, which I didn't mind, because Scotland Yard, 
very sexy name and all the rest of it, but it was basically a 1960s tower block with very poor air conditioning and, and hugely overcrowded. So when they said to us, you can have a, an office space in one of the outer buildings, we thought, yay! And, and initially they gave us a really nice modern space in a building in Soho Square, which we loved. Mm. Just up Oxford Street, or right in the heart of it. And, there, and the, all the other people who showed the buildings with us were creative industry. So it was great, so we'd meet them in the canteen and swap ideas. There were some guys from Bloomsbury, sort of next door, we used to ch chat to the publishers. Uh, then they moved us to TPHQ, uh, which is what is now Scotland Yard, right opposite the Millennium Eye, mm. right opposite the London yeah. Eye. And, um, which was handy on New Year's Eve, because you just sit in the office and watch all the fireworks. Hey! <laughs> uh, while having a cup of tea or a beer. Um, but yeah, they gave us a nice office there. Um, and quite apart from, apart from the smell of Basil Jet sewers in the summer, <laughs> on, on, on the Victorian Bankman, that was a great space. We used to go in on a Monday and have what we call morning prayers, where we'd just sit around and talk about the problems that had come into us that week and what had been going on. And we'd, we'd have good sort of uh, brainstorming sessions and try and help each other out. But one of the things we did to kind of build sustainability in what we were doing is we knew that our unit probably wasn't going to last forever because we were all people who'd kind of built up 20, 25 years worth of experience. And we were all heading for retirement. We were all sort of like three or four years off retirement. And they didn't seem very keen on replacing us because, um, first of all, they have to find people who think who thought the same way as we did, which would seem to be a bit of a rarity. Um, and secondly, you know, it would it wouldn't tell bringing in more people who again had that level of experience. So as soon as you trained them up, they'd be retiring. So we thought, is there any way of, of sort of passing the knowledge out? So what we did is on each London borough, thirty-two London boroughs, we we had someone who became that borough's problem-solving advisor. And what we did was train them up. Mm. to as much level of knowledge as we could instill in them. And we ran training courses as well. We, we'd say to a borough, we will go out and run a training day where we'll train as many of your staff as you can fit into a room yeah, with wow. health and safety. And we'll teach them as much as we can oh. teach them in a day or two days. But we do want a third of the people in that room to be from partner agencies. We want people in the local authority. We want fire officers, NHS, we want social services, uh, third sector, you know, bringing some charity people so that this you're all chatting to each other and you're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And that was a great way of spreading the information out. And we also used to meet about once every six months at the home office with our equivalents in other forces, uh, which was kind of the origins of the nudge unit. The nudge unit kind of grew mm. out of that. Um, I mean, it's not because the nudge unit is something quite separate, but, but the idea formed in the home office at the time, particularly under Blair's government, that we should have something like this. Um, and that was great because everything we learned from what was going on nationally, we could feed back out to our people in the 32 boroughs. Yeah. And all the great stuff they were doing, they could feed back to us. We had a constant flow of information and good ideas going on. So it, it was a great ideas bank. It worked really, really well. Really well. What was the kind of, so when you said you did training, what were the kind of, how did you teach it? How did you teach your way? We would, well, the secret was, the secret was to try and take some quite complex, and, and quite often academic ideas, and, and put them into very real-world scenarios. I mean, you, you're taking something like, you know, Cohen and Felsen's routine activity theory, you know, and, 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 and try and get that down to a sense where you can show, well, actually, routine activity theory can be brought down to a simple diagram of a triangle <laughs> with victim, offender, location. And, you know, if you concentrate all your efforts just on offender, just on catching the bad guys, then you take that bad guy, you grab them, you put them in prison, yay, everyone's happy. Except that if the victims are still acting in a way that made them liable to be targets, and nothing has changed about the features of the location to stop that crime from happening there, another motivated defender just comes in and takes yeah. that slot. You've just taken that side of the triangle away, someone else comes in, work on all three sides, we'll get rid of burglaries, and, we'll go, and, and that was it. The idea was to try and make it very simplistic terms, something they could carry away and use straight away and and again we always had lots of fun we, we made it we made it very interesting we had a lot of practical exercises and, and sort of role plays and people still love going on the courses i think I, if I'm, I, it's 97 or 98 percent satisfaction rate which was amazing wow. which was amazing for a training day because most of it was like yeah <laughs> front. the only thing we didn't have a lot of success with was the cid and i'm saying that as someone who was a cid officer um and the reason i think was that they kind of were very wary of the idea of us preventing all crimes from happening <laughs> because then they'd have to put on a hat and a funny suit and go out and yeah. walk around the streets again yeah. because the CID only exists to clear up afterwards. Yeah. 
So there was there was a there was a certain sense of you know, I worked really hard to be an ID officer. I don't want to be a wooden top again, as they were called. At least they believe what you're saying, then it works. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and and the thing is, there were and, and it was a very small proportion of the ID officers who were disruptive or really negative. But they they their, their buy-in wasn't quite as strong as the uniform officers were. Uh, but saying that, some very senior CID officers were, were huge champions of this. Uh, one of them was a guy called Paul Anstey, who's now head of security at the um, Great Ormond Street Hospital. Fantastic guy. Absolutely fantastic guy. So, and is it still going? Then? No, well, the problem was that we, we were always aware of the fact that once we left, and that sort of you know quite uncommon pool of knowledge that existed between all of us, when that was gone, it was gone. So we tried to, to disseminate as much as we possibly could. But the problem was that there was a there was a shift in government, a shift in mayor. I mean, I'm I'm not a political animal, but the fact is that, you know, um, when Ken Livingstone was mayor, he made a large amount of money available for every single political ward. Every ward in London across all 32 boroughs had its own dedicated, uh, like problem solving team, a community based yeah. team, and it was usually a sergeant, two PCs, and three PCSOs, community support officers. And their job would be, while you know the regular cops, uh, guy, you know what they would call the response police, were still doing their job of answering the nine 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 calls and catching the bad guys. These guys would be working on the community issues, and sure enough, you know, with a team on every single ward in London, crime started going. In fact, burglary dropped its lowest rate since the nineteen seventies. It, it was staggeringly popular. But as soon as there was a change of government, uh, and we we hit the recession as well, it was. Police has got to lose 5,000 staff, police have got to learn X amount of millions, they've got to lose from their budget every year. Um, the first thing that goes whenever there's budget cuts and staffing cuts, it's never the frontline cops because you wouldn't ever want the public to think well, there are fewer police yeah, around. Yeah. The thing that always goes is the guys in the background. So the teams went from being you know, a sergeant, two PCs and three PCSOs to now being a sergeant and two PCSOs. And, and, and now I don't think there's anything. I mean, yeah. I think there are still people who are dubbed community policing officers. But I think they're expected to do as much frontline response stuff as everyone else. Uh, and the problem is, it, it's and crime's going back up again. Knife crime's going back up again. You know, it, it's if you don't have that engagement of the police and the community, crime is always going to stay high. You go to any rural community where the police and the community work closely together. Everyone knows everyone else. Crime is low. It, it's it's there. It's there for anyone to see. The the big issue is short termism. Everything's short term. You know, you can't. You want to put a response in place. That may take you five years, but every term of government is every four years. Yeah. You know, every new, yeah, and every new commissioner will come in after about three or four years and want to be the new broom that sweeps all of the, you know, makes yeah. their mark. And everything short termism. It's very difficult to get anything going that's going to have a lasting effect because you know if you want lasting change, it takes a while to get that ball rolling. It's like a steam train. You know, it starts off slow. Once it gets up ahead of steam, you're fine, but it takes a time. Yeah, you, you know, you don't get an instant fix, and then ha ha, everything's happy forever. So there is there is long term change, I guess, and there's, uh, and there's all that. But out, out of the out of your thirty years of doing policing, do you have a favourite idea? You can't say lollipops. Do you know? No, no. I, I think I think my favourite, or the one I enjoyed the most, was was using wizards to deal with street gamblers. I think that, that, that was I think that was my favourite, and that, that grew out of the fact that street gambling. You know, you go down to Westminster Bridge now, you'll see them today. That they were the cup and the balls or the three card yeah. trick. And, and if it's just, you know, you're sort of Dell and Rodney type who are just doing it for a bit of pocket money at the weekend, that's fine. But it wasn't that. And, and the one we'd particularly been asked to go and look at was in uh, Waltham Forest. And um, it was known that the people who were doing the three-card trick were feeding the money back into organised crime syndicates who were then taking what was actually quite a substantial amount of funding. These guys were taking, you know, sometimes hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands a day they were fleecing the public. And that money was being fed back into more serious crimes like you know sort of drug smuggling or human trafficking, prostitution, all these sorts of things. So we wanted to cut off that very lucrative source of income. And um, it's a very difficult one to tackle. If I go back to that triangle with the victim offender location thing, they would always pick locations with lots of escape routes. So they, it was always very open planning, shopping centres and things like mm. that. Um, they would also have very good network of lookouts. So their lookouts placed and would give them the nod if a cop was coming anywhere. Very little equipment with them, usually a couple of milk crates or a table with a piece of card on top and a pack of cards. They can just dump it and run, you know. Yeah. Um, and they also had, apart from the lookouts, they also had shills in the audience, which are the, the sort of fake customers, the yeah. people who, uh, I will have a go at your game. <laughs> oh, I've won £20. <laughs> everyone, everyone should have a go at this. It's very funny. I, I was with uh, Stephen Dubner, who's uh, one of the yeah. of Freakonomics. Uh, yeah. Stephen and I, he came, he came over to interview me for the Freakonomics podcast. And we went down onto Westminster Bridge and we watched one of these things taking place. 
And it was very funny because there's a guy with an Eastern European accent. I'm going to say horribly racist doing the accent, but with an Eastern European accent, saying, come along, play the game, play the game. And some woman came out the door and said, I will play your game with exactly the same accent. <laughs> and, and then she won sort of 20 pounds. And then someone, and then someone else said, I would also like to play your game. You know, with the same <laughs> game. And it was so obvious. And they all looked the same. Uh, but I thought, why is everyone falling for this? And then you realise that everyone standing around was a tourist. And, you know, there were Japanese and mm, some Chinese yeah, yeah. and Indian and Pakistani and... And, and, you know, they probably couldn't tell that the accent, because they're not listening to a language they actually even speak, a lot of them, probably didn't realise they were all the same accents. But, yeah, we, we it was very difficult to tackle this issue because good escape routes, good lookouts, and that, and just never caught them. Um, so we thought, well, the only thing we haven't tried on that side of the triangle is the, is the victim side. Now, can we stop people, can we cut their line of supply? Can we stop them gambling? And we sat down and thought about it, and, and um, very similar idea to what you guys did a couple of years later with put pockets, the idea we yeah. had the pickpockets, yeah. putting stuff into people's pockets so they get, what the heck's in my pocket? You know, and if, uh, if anyone's listening, you don't know what put pockets is, the idea was, it's reverse pickpocketing, isn't it? You put something in someone's pocket, a card that looks like a smartphone or, or a tablet or something like that, which says, I put this in your pocket really easy, I could have taken your phone out just as easily, be more careful about where you store your stuff. Yeah. And, and it's that poacher term gamekeeper. We, I, we, I love that idea. And, and we thought, who's really good at the three-card trick? Who's really good at showing that this is a trick? Could display to the public and, and persuade them that they're going to lose their money to take part. We thought, well, a magician's the obvious thing. <laughs> so a friend of mine had seen a, um, a young magician who, at the time, was only 19 years old, a guy called Emmanuel Fire, spelled F-A-J-A, um, lovely lad, and um, introduced me to him. So I met, I met Manny. As he's called, uh, I met him in a cafe in Walton Forest, and we played the three card trick over a coffee table for about an hour, and I didn't beat him once. Nineteen. Some of these guys on the streets have been doing it for thirty years. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it, I said, "It's amazing. We've been playing this for half an hour. I didn't beat you once." He said, "Yeah, and I've nicked your watch." He said, <laughs> <laughs> "And I look at my wrist, and my, and my watch was gone. I, I, no, I can't even remember him touching me. But at some point, he got my watch undone and taken on my wrist. I had no idea how. Um, Nineteen. And I said, oh, this is brilliant. Would you be willing to show the public how this is done? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so he did. And, and, and he was a young lad, dark hair, round glasses. He was halfway to Harry Potter. So we thought, let's, let's stick him in a wizard outfit. And, <laughs> and he was put out in a, in a market dressed as, just as Harry Potter with a couple of you know, huge coppers next to him. So no one beat him up. He, and, and he spent all day in the freezing cold, bless his heart. And, and we got the local authority to put up a bursary, sort of some money for him. Yeah. And he stood there all day showing people. He would say to people, as soon as you approach the table, I've got your money. If I don't want you to win, you will never win. It's called the three-card trick for a reason. <laughs> you know, it's not the three-card game. No, it's a, it, he said, it's, it's a trick. It's an illusion. It, it's, it's, he said, even if you randomly shut your eyes and pick one randomly and thought, I've got a 33% chance of getting this right. He said, I'll still take it and I'll shuffle it or I'll, I'll slip the card away and get another one out. You will never win. And sure enough, they never did and, it's not a sustainable solution because you'd have to have money there 24 hours a day, every day, <laughs> yeah, yeah. dressed as a wizard because of the big turnover of shoppers. But there was a nice ripple effect and the people went away and told their friends. Mm. And then what we also did was we filmed it and we put it on, on video displays around the shopping centre. So he came up very often between the adverts for you know, lingerie and Mars bars or whatever. But, but you know, it, it, it kind of did the job because the street gamblers stopped working there. Now, don't get me wrong, they will just go somewhere else. But if everyone did that, in, there are only a certain number of spots that they will operate before it becomes too risky for them. And they think, no, I don't operate there. My chances of getting caught are too high. Now, it could be that their activity will then displace into something different. They'll start nicking from cars or doing something else. But, but you know, it's a, it's a constant war of attrition. You, you, you're trying something. You beat them. They beat you. My favorite story with that was during the illegal raves of the early 90s. Because the posters used to go up like, 24 hours before the illegal raid, knowing that there was no time for the police to organise a response to deal with it yeah. at that time. Uh, and, you know, no matter what we tried, we couldn't we couldn't catch them or stop them, and all we could do was police the event when it happened. But, you know, the best solution for that was having stickers made up saying cancelled and putting them on, <laughs> <laughs> putting them on all the posters, you know. And, uh, and, and then they'd have stickers made up saying not, and they put them in front of our cancelled, you know, things like that. But, but yeah, it, it's a constant war of attrition with you out, trying to outthink each other, and they can be so creative some of these. But um, but yeah, it, it was it was fascinating, and I, I spent pretty much 10, 11 years of my thirty years doing the problem solving unit stuff. You know, yeah. tackling some quite 
serious issues, taking some that were a little bit more whimsical. Uh, it was great when you got those really lovely creative solutions because they're just so talkable. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's just great. And uh, I left the police eight years ago, thinking, well, that's that. Went away and wrote QI and you know, tried to make things for Stephen Fry sound funny. <laughs> not, that he, not that he needs a lot of help, it must be said. Uh, and then Sandy, of course, when she took over. Yeah. Um, Museum of Curiosity, brilliant. And, and in some ways, I preferred that to QI because. Yeah. At the beginning of the year, we just made a wish list that people we wanted to meet. You know, <laughs> what the Buzz Aldrin on the show, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, you know, Terry Pratchett and all these sorts of people. Um, yeah, and, and I thought that was that. But eight years later, I'm still being flown to Kuala Lumpur to talk to insurance agents about problem solving. and, and uh, Or I'm, I'm sitting in a, a nice little office at St. Container's house talking to Ogilvy, you know. It's an incredibly relevant skill set because now more than ever, there, there are these problems that, that need oblique strategies to yeah. be solved. Absolutely. Do more with less. I mean, well, people are having to, aren't they? Mm. People are having to, and, and it's it's quite surprising what little resources. I mean, that people talk a lot. I, I love it when people say, "Oh, think outside the box," yeah. and I always say to them, "No, think inside the box," because because you know, all right, think outside the box in terms of letting your imagination roam, but invariably you've got to stick it in a box, and that box will be resources, it'll be finance, it'll be acceptability. There's a lot of problems you can solve and actually upset maybe half the public or whatever, you know. There are all boxes. You're always having to operate within boxes, but there's no reason why you can't be constantly punching inside the box to make it bigger. You know, it's thinking outside the box and also inside the box. But yeah, doing doing more with less has become very much um, the way people are having to operate these days. And, and I'm always fascinated how much you can do with very little if you think it through. I mean, the, the big thing, it comes back always to knowing what the problem is. And that's the thing I think. If if, I, if there was one lesson I took from all this, it's the it's the facility for digging down. You know, it's that five whys example, isn't it? You know, why is this happening? But why? But why? But why? And, and you'll get to a point where you either understand why the problem happens, or you have to you have to admit I don't know, which is you to do some more research. But yeah, if you understand the root causes of a problem, you stand a much better chance of solving. Much better. Well, that has been amazing. We've. Really, really enjoyed that. Thanks. Well, thanks very much. And is, it, is the book still? Because a lot of these stories are in the book. Is the yeah, book it came out in hardback last year. It was called Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road? Yeah. Um, we've had a few problems with the book because books, shops don't seem to know where to place it. Sometimes you find it. In the, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you find it in the law section. Which True crime. Yeah. Well, no. It, it's. It, I wish it was because that's quite a popular section. I, I found it in the law section in, in Blackwells and Oxford, sitting next to a book all about the repeal of the Corn Laws and, and something to do with traffic lights. Um, I, in one independent bookshop, I found it in the jokes section. I think they thought that it was a book of jokes. Why did the policeman cross the road? Yeah. Oh. Um, so what we've done is it's coming out in paperback in July, July the 12th, and right. it's been rebadged and repackaged, and it's now called One Step Ahead, Notes from the Problem Solving Unit. Um, it's essentially the same book, a couple of little updates in terms of statistics and, and things, but essentially the same book. And hopefully this time it'll find its way into that kind of business, popular science, yeah, psychology yeah. sort of section. Yeah, so, it's, so, so, it's, <laughs> so it's it's rubbing rubbing shoulders with your Malcolm Gladwells and your Leonard Lodonovs and all these sorts of people, because that's kind of the market it's aimed at. Um, it's kind of autobiographical, it explains my sort of journey, and indeed the original title, Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road, was all about that move from being reactive to proactive. That, that's the road I crossed, as it were. Um, but I think the new title still works okay. And um, yeah, we'll see how it does. I mean, it's um, it's nice that it's going to be a paperback. I thought because because sales have been a bit iffy at the hardback. I thought, ooh, that's that. But that, but the publishers not after this, do Well, the publishers, <laughs> the publishers believe in it, and, and the fact that I'm still talking about it eight years later, they've said, yeah, let's do a paperback and maybe have a bit of a scrum round a table and see if we can come up with the best Amazing. Side. And we're going to listen to you do a talk now, which is another privilege. Oh, yeah, is it that time? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So it is, yeah. Thank you very much. You're just going to hear all the same stuff again. <laughs> well, not the fun side. I'd go right? home. Go to the pub. It's going to be much more interesting, trust me. <laughs> but if it goes beyond 45 minutes, we might hand out lollipops to the stage. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> yeah. Or well, at post 45 minutes, all you'll learn is endurance. We're all trust me. All you'll learn is endurance. So. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> Amazing. Steve Colgan, thank you very much. Pleasure, thank you. Thanks to Steve, Mike and Dan for that conversation. To hear more from Steve, you can follow him on Twitter, at Stephen Colgan. And as he said, his book, Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road, is out in paperback this summer. His novel, A Murder to Die For, is in shops now. For more from us, you can follow at Ogilvy Change on Twitter, and check out our blog, 
o-behave.tumblr.com. As always, we'd like to thank Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. And Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>